Yo, Chad, what if I told you there's a platform that could completely revolutionize your hiring strategy in a matter of hours? Yeah, I'd call bullshit. Well, it's not bullshit with AI for Jobs, powered by our friends at This Way Global. Okay, I'm listening. Uh, While everyone else is fishing in the same old talent pools, AI for Jobs can source over 160 million diverse candidate profiles. This Way Global has established unique partnerships with over 8,500 trusted diversity partners. So wait a minute. All of the hard on-the-ground work is already done. That's right, Cowboy. You can discover 300 qualified candidates per job rack instantly. Wow. It's like having a candidate sourcing magic wand. (laughs) Dude, if you had a magic wand, you would have Mexican pizzas all day. Mm. Uh, Stop distracting me, Sowash. AI for Jobs Advanced Matching Algorithm analyzes past applicants using trillions of historical matching events and over 1,600 data points. Now that is what AI should be doing, saving recruiters time on sourcing while they provide a white glove candidate experience. Let's wrap this shit up. I'm hungry. Listen up, kids. Revolutionize your hiring process today by jumping over to thiswayglobal.com and checking out AI for Jobs, where you can learn more about how to leverage AI for your recruiting instead of just writing poems and grocery lists. That is thiswayglobal.com. We out. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? You know what it is. It's your favorite guilty pleasure, the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman. Joined, as always, the peas to my carrots. Chad Sowash is here, and today we welcome Tom Kenny to the show. That's right. Ooh. Former CEO at Smashfly, now Hello. director at Google, and forever soldier, apparently. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, forever. <laughs> Jesus. Thanks, Thanks, Chad. <laughs> I sleep well at night knowing that Tom is on the case. Tom, how you been, man? I'm doing well, and you're you're safe for at least two days a month for what I do with the Army Reserve. So at, at least you got that. To Don't cover. forget two weeks. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks during the year. summer. That's right? true. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. True. So summer side. He's, he's calling in from an undisclosed bunker. We're not quite sure where Tom is at the moment, but we appreciate the time to sit down with us, dude. You've been away from Smashfly how long? Hey, give us a little little post on that. Right? We we had your CTO went to CEO acquisition happened and then ejected. What happened after that? So what happened after that was COVID, which was a really, really interesting time for everybody. Now you're bringing me down. Jesus. <laughs> well, but, it, but it's interesting. You know, COVID, COVID changed a, a lot of different things. And, yeah. and for me, it was, it was really quite interesting, right? It's some time to reflect, some time to grow personally a bit. Mm-hmm. And out of the blue, got this call from a venture capitalist friend of mine that said somebody needed some help with data and artificial intelligence. And having this reserve experience that I've had for so many years, the deployments that I've done overseas, it was a call from the commanding general of Special Operations Command, you know, a four-star general. And, you know, guys like me and my rank in the reserves <laughs> don't get those calls very often. Yeah. No. 
And he said, hey, come help me transform the command with data and AI. And so I, I went and spent a couple of years with Special Operations Command, you know, transforming that organization, working with some of the most elite operators in the world. Yes. And helping the DOD in general kind of grow from a data and AI perspective. It, it was a fantastic two, just over two years where an experience I would never get any other way. It was, it was really, really interesting. So you're talking about the most elite groups. I mean, especially, I mean, I wouldn't just say in the army, but also in the military, because there's, there's some sharing that happens there. And, and they're now their usage of AI is, is, is that what I'm hearing? Because that to me is the coolest fucking thing ever. We've got like the guys who are physical, they're there, but then they have the intelligence and then also AI kind of like compressing all of that for them. Absolutely. And with the Special Operations Command, you had Navy folks, you had Marine Corps folks, yeah. you had Coast Guard folks, Air Ooh. Force, Army. It's it's a whole mix of different folks inside of the military that are doing these things. And it's eye-opening sometimes how this manifests itself. So, for example, we set up a capability to be able to do data mining, data science, a little bit of machine learning on both unclassified and classified platforms in a way where you could build a model and work with it in mm -hmm. the unclassified world and then seamlessly move it up into the classified world. And we open that up to everyone inside of special operations. And after about six months of that, what was really, really interesting is the number one set of users mm -hmm. that we had by far mm -hmm. were non-commissioned officers from the Marine Corps special operations teams. Wow. Right. And, it, and it was really interesting to see more than 50% of the users were from that specific cohort. They were just embracing it, what they could do with it from a personnel perspective, from a tactics perspective, from a learning perspective was just incredible to watch. Yeah. Tom, maybe it's maybe it's all the doom scrolling uh, I do every day. Maybe it's because I'm a parent. Obviously, the world is a very volatile place with Russia, China, Iran. I'm going to ask you like a big picture question that's unrelated to AI or employment. Like, what is your take on the state of the world? Like, should I should I be so sleepless at night or should I be sleeping like a baby? This is Tom's personal opinion yep. and is not, not based on anything I do anywhere else. But I, I don't think we have to sleep restlessly at night. I think we have to be cautious about what we do. I think we need to be deliberate about the decisions that we make and the leaders that we choose. But I don't think we have to necessarily be restless at night. And part of that is because we've created a world economy that's so intertwined that any real significant moves that would be catastrophic on the world stage, especially from a war perspective, mm -hmm. would impact the aggressors as much as the defenders. And we see some of that in Ukraine. We see some of that in Taiwan. And there's all the different conversations that are happening. The bigger concern from my perspective, is one of resources. And it's more a commercial risk than it is a military risk. You know, where we have limited resources and who controls those limited resources has a bigger impact on economies necessarily than it does on militaries. And we have to be ready to stand and defend. You know, the Army's mission is to fight and win the nation's wars, you know, part of my job in the Army Reserve. But generally speaking, we are so intertwined that it would really take some, I'm going to say maniacal intent or some completely closed-minded attempt to go after a place where you're going to bring the entire world into a world war. That's that's Tom's opinion. I could be completely all wrong. Right, we can all, all rest, right, everybody. 
right. Well, and I think a, a lot of that has to do with the amount of budget that is actually given to guys like like Tom and our, our defense. I mean, we have more more budget going to that than the next, uh, I think, uh, nine nations, which uh, I think seven are actually NATO. There you go, Joel. You, you should feel better. Almost more money than Google, where Tom is, oh. is also currently an employee. Let's talk about Tell that. Tell us about that, Tom. Well, you know, Google's got a trillion dollar valuation, so maybe not the same scale as the <laughs> Department of Defense. But Google's a really interesting place. So when General Clark retired from SOCOM, it was a good time for me because he and I were great partners down there to find my next move. And there was an opportunity to go focus on artificial intelligence with some of the world's biggest customers, including the Department of Defense, the Department of State inside of the U.S. And it was a really interesting transition going from typically my history has been in small to medium-sized business, Mm -hmm. you know, either founding them or turning them around through acquisitions. And the DOD is a very, very large organization and Google's a very large organization. So it's, it's really, really fascinating to work with customers like Deutsche Bank and Siemens and the Department of Defense and Department of State as they are on their own journeys for developing capabilities around artificial intelligence, advanced data, new ways of doing business, new ways of interfacing with customers. It's, this is really a, an exceptionally interesting time to be involved in technology with how much transition we're seeing across the entire technology landscape. Well, everybody is just fascinated by BARD and ChatGPT. Now everybody knows what a, at least they think they know what a large language model is for God's sakes. Today, obviously, BARD and, and you working with Google, a lot of these companies want to be able to find ways to actually integrate large language models or, or actually something that, that, that helps their, their process or, or helps co-pilot their, their employees. What, do you, what are you doing around that? Is that really your major focus right now or are there, are there other programs and, and products and services that Google has that you're, you're spending more time with? There are so many different ways to interface with Google. I mean, mm-hmm. we've we've got more than 10 products that have over a billion unique users. Oh, I mean, the, the planet scale size of what <laughs> Google does is almost incomprehensible. Yeah. Wow. And when you think about where Google's technology investments are, mm-hmm. we own every inch of fiber that we use around the globe, right? All those undersea cables, all those data centers. That's all Google owned. And that allows us to be very, very specific with how we develop technologies that Mm -hmm. enable being able to have as many products that have billions of users around the world. But to your point, a lot of what people are looking at right now are are in two buckets. There's the large language model, the, the, the generative AI type software tools that are out there that people are trying to figure out how can I best use it. Right. And then there's still the data question. And in particular, the data question, because we have so much information that we're creating every single day. And if you think about where we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to be calculating our data in zettabytes. And zettabytes is, it blows your mind to think that with the amount of information that we have in the world today and that will be created in the next few years, mm-hmm. there are not enough laptops and desktops and hard drives in the world today that people use as consumers to have that much data. I mean, that's how much data we're creating. It's impossible just with, think of all the laptops and all the desktops that are out there today, that still doesn't even have enough information to hold everything that the world is creating. 
So the impact of data mm-hmm. may be one of those things that, you know, years ago we were all talking about big data and how do we get after big data? And then we had data lakes and data streams and, yep. and lake houses and all these different things that are out there. It is that problem is not going away. The data problem is absolutely not going away. And as you think about generative AI, you've also got to think about how the data that feeds generative AI also has to be managed. So these two things are really intertwined significantly for the world's largest customers. So you think about banks transforming the way they work with their customers, or you think about a recruiting team that's trying to find the next best candidate or write those job descriptions, or you think about autonomous vehicles and how they can leverage large language models. These are all really interesting aspects. And one of the biggest challenges with large language models, if we tie it back to data, is the ability to stay up to date. So if you go on to BARD, if you go on to ChatGPT, and something happens in, let's say, North Korea, mm-hmm. and it happened at six o'clock this morning, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily going to be able to use large language models to get output based on that what happened in the morning, because the processing time is immense for keeping that stuff up to date. So that data aspect is huge. Well, what about the security side of the house? I mean, look at UKG, who just had a huge data security problem where they couldn't actually pay. They, they were being held ransom, right? Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of this data is uh, is data that could prospectively be held ransom as well. And you're, you're turning off new behaviors and, and even more data after you continue to crunch with all those GPUs, those NVIDIA GPUs, right? So so what happens there? I mean, there's got to be a double, triple, quad down on security, right? There absolutely is. And where you look at where Google is, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, we had, were pioneers in this idea of zero trust. And it changes the way you think about security from basically edge security to trust no one yes. security. You know, for years we said, hey, we have a firewall and we've got rules on this firewall and you can't get into the firewall. Well, guess what? Once you're in past the firewall, a, a lot of networks have carte blanche access to a lot of different things. It's a bounty. So the idea of zero trust goes beyond the edge. It says, okay, maybe you do get past an edge, but I still don't trust you. You want to get access to a database? Okay. But I still don't trust you if you've got access to the database to get access to the data. And one of the most important aspects of how data security is transforming is this idea of context. You know, what is the context in which you're trying to access this data? For example, you are in Indiana most of your time and you're accessing Gmail most of the time from Indiana. Mm -hmm. And then you take off and go visit a friend in Portugal, for example. Well, guess what? Somebody's going to raise their hand on the security side and say, wait a minute, you're now in Portugal. Mm -hmm. And we see this all the time with credit cards. Credit cards are doing this fraud detection, Mm -hmm. right? I had this experience just recently. I'm in Kansas right now for the army and I'm trying to buy dinner while my daughter is in Boston paying for her visa for her grad school in the fall in London and all the fraud alerts are going off because they're looking at the context in which the transactions are happening. So as we look at zero trust, that context becomes really, really important so that when you're talking about things like ransomware, the idea of phishing and spearing and the techniques that people use for social engineering to get access to networks Mm -hmm. still doesn't necessarily give you the access once you're there because context becomes really important. The nature in which you're trying to access data becomes important. Sounds like we need to go deep, Tom. Just the tip. 
Can you give me a definition, a layman's definition of generative AI? Because I think a lot of our listeners are still trying to get their head around AI, and now we're throwing generative in there. Give us a definition. So a very, very simple way to think about generative AI with things like large language models is the probability by which something will occur. And by probability in large language models, what I mean is, what's the probability that the word follows another word? And I've used this example before to say, if you have a sentence that says, an airplane needs, and then that next word, what's the Mm -hmm. probability that that word exists? Now, the more data that you have, the more you can conclude with probabilistic certainty, what that next word will be. But still, there's a little bit of of an open interpretation. An airplane needs wings. An airplane needs an engine. An airplane needs a pilot. There's lots of different words. But what's the probability of that word? And so as you think about things, there's a, a term called an n-gram. An n is just a number. And it basically says, how many words am I looking ahead for generative AI to try to create the probability that this will come out next. And that's how generative AI is able to answer a question that says, you know, what is the what is the best place for me to go on vacation? Or write me an abstract for a conference paper I want to do. Or write me a job description for a software engineer that I can send off to uh, any of the job sites that exist. I mean, a lot of it has to do with probability. Okay. Correct. So it's all of those things are just looking at the corpus of data that already exists and what's the probability of those outputs. So it's not really inventing anything. It's not really creating anything new. It's using probabilities based on information that already exists to summarize data that's out there. So chat GPT is less than a year old. Um, and are you surprised at how it's taken off? And if you had to predict what it looks like a year from now, uh, Bard will still be less than a year old a year from now. Uh, I mean, just give us a sense of how fast this is happening and, and how we human beings can wrap our head around it. So it, it's a misunderstanding to think ChatGPT has only been around for a year. The reality is it's been publicly available in its current form with Microsoft for a year. But OpenAI, the company that was started quite a number of years ago, has been working on this type of generative transformer for a while, for for many, 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 many years. As a matter of fact, at SOCOM in 2021, we did a hackathon with an earlier version of ChatGPT and saw some really, really incredible results for what it was able to do even in that early version. So for me personally, I am not at all surprised, not at all surprised for a couple of reasons. Number one is it really does seem like magic. When you think about how this is actually working in the background, Mm -hmm. it's really kind of magical. And second, everyone's looking for ways to do things easier, faster, simpler. But we're also introducing some really interesting new technologies too. So there's like the second and third order of effects of this too. So think about ChatGPT writing a paper for school, right? You go into college and all these professors are thinking, oh my God, you know, I've got all this ChatGPT stuff and I I need to know whether or not somebody's using that to write a paper. Well, there's an MIT student who came up with something called GPT-0. And GPT-0 uses the same sort of paradigms to detect the patterns that ChatGPT uses 
to determine the probability of whether or not this paper was written by ChatGPT. Okay, now enter another tool called Quill. Mm -hmm. Well, if you take your output from ChatGPT and then you run it through Quillbot, well, guess what? GPT-0 doesn't really know anymore whether it's ChatGPT. Because <laughs> you took the summary and the paraphrase and put it through a summarizer and a paraphraser that is now undetectable. You know, so you think about those things. And, and even from my perspective, uh, I've, I've now gotten two invites to speak at conferences based on abstracts that chat gpt wrote <laughs> yeah yeah so okay let me throw this at you this is real world stuff right now we've got the screen actors we've got the writers we've got they're they're afraid of all of this and they should be and 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 a couple of different reasons number one uh the the uh writers you know they're worried that you know ai is it's good now but it could be great in just a few years which means long term they could be easily out of a job or at least a good amount of them secondarily we have actors and we've talked to uh ryan steelberg who's the uh, ceo of veritone who's actually cloned our voices that digital clone means something, not just from a voice standpoint, but also from a, a visible standpoint, from a, from a video, from a clone, from a deep fake standpoint. Where do we go from here? Does legislation just have to finally kick in? Uh, are we going to have to wait till Europe does something because the U.S. is just sitting on their hands? What, what's going on with this? Because there are significant issues that could happen start today, which have and really impact us in just a few years or maybe even months. Maybe even months. There's a whole lot to unpack with that. Mm -hmm. So let me start first with the actors, the Screen Actors Guild, AFTRA, the strike that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. They do have every concern to be worried on one level because the ease at which you can write a script today is so much simpler with tools like ChatGPT or Bard or any of the other large Because they're just crunching other scripts, right? They're just crunching other scripts. Yeah. And you could make an argument that there are certain television channels that are known for saccharine movies, right? They've got a very predictable Hallmark channel. You're saying that like it's a bad thing, Tom. <laughs> Joel's Joel's Hallmark channel. He loves the Hallmark Nothing channel. Nothing like a good holiday romance, Tom. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. That's right. Say Hallmark, it. baby. <laughs> So there are there are repetitive ways to pull these things out, right? But on the on the flip side of it, there are opportunities here for folks that can take a core of something that's created with a large language model mm-hmm. and then ex- expand it in their with their own vision and their own ideas. So there's still a lot of creativity. Because part of this is when you look at all of this data, and this is something I've, I've chatted about with some friends and with my wife when we you know, sit around and think about big things. If all of the information that we start to create with large language models is only based on information that we have already created as humans, mm. are we going to get to a point where we're going to stagnate with creativity? Because are, are we just going to continue to regurgitate what we've already created? Will artificial intelligence get to a point of sentience where it truly can create something purely original, just like a human would? I think that's a little bit further down the line. Mm -hmm. But we we may enter into the trap in the near term that says we're just regurgitating and regurgitating and regurgitating because that's what we're feeding the models. Mm -hmm. And in in kind of mindset of self-licking ice cream cone. That same data that's being created by the large language models is going back into the corpus of data that's feeding the large language models. 
So as we do more and more and more of large language model development, more and more of that is being fed into the large language models to do more large language model output. So you, you can see that this just starts creating more and more and more and more automated content that's been generated. And what does that mean from a creativity standpoint long-term? So for the actors, for call center operators, for a lot of different occupations, there is a question of how much of this is going to remove the work that I've done as a creative person. Mm-hmm. And that's you're not going to get away from the answer that says some of it. Now, is it 10%? Is it 90%? Is an open question, but some of it is. The writers and the actors who embrace this type of technology will have an advantage, in my opinion, because they can leverage the technology to build on their own creative base long term. Okay, listener, how can you help your employees become more productive? I have answers. How about automating manual and repetitive tasks, giving meaning to data, then allowing that data to actually drive decisions? And how about matching people to your jobs quicker? Well, wait, the Chat and Cheese has a new LLM? No, Cheeseman, I'm talking about Text Kernel. Ah, okay, that makes more sense. What I'm hearing is the groundbreaking concept of, wait for it, yeah, simplicity. <laughs> seriously, though, seriously. Text kernel cuts through the complexities like a tortilla chip through some hot nacho cheese. Oh, my God. Really? Nacho references already. Anyways, Text uh-huh. kernel brings efficiency and productivity to your operations. Text kernel seamlessly unifies your tools and data to drive efficiencies and success. Text Kernel is creating new opportunities for your recruitment journey, kind of like adding guac to my barbacoa burrito. Oh my God. How about extracting meaningful insights from data? I mean, that, that's something. Swiftly matching yeah. people with jobs, automating repetitive tasks. Who knew such advanced concepts were even possible in the land of human resources? Uh, we did, Chad. We did. Dude, wrap it up. I'm a little hungry. Imagine that. Uh, Okay, listener, get ready to use today's tech to drive efficiencies and productivity. Visit textkernel.com. That's T-E-X-T-K-E-R-N-E-L.com. Nachos. (laughs) Are you struggling to attract the talent you need today? Do you lack visibility into where your recruitment ad dollars are really going? There's a better way. Acquire ROI is a programmatic job advertising platform built to optimize your budget and supercharge hiring. Acquire ROI automatically manages and measures recruitment ads across job boards so you can allocate your budget based on insights, not hunches. Get to quality candidates faster and cost-effectively scale hiring across roles, all while gaining complete visibility and control over your recruitment marketing investments. Say goodbye to manual guesswork, inconsistent performance, and wasted spending. And hello to optimized automated campaigns that produce qualified applicants. At Acquire ROI, we make job advertising easy. Visit us at acquireroi.com and start transforming your talent acquisition today. Well, and also think about scalability. And again, something else that we talked to, to Ryan about at Veritone is that let's say, for instance, Brad Pitt. 
he his his voice in other languages is not his voice right but if again it's it's a cloned uh a digital clone of his voice then he can actually you can get Brad Pitt's voice but also he can get paid on that right and then we start yeah. then we start to get into the the multimodal piece where we start taking in information that's you know uh video pictures all that other fun stuff and then we start generating clones uh that are more than 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 just mm-hmm. just voice and then at that point again as an actor i could prospectively scale instead of cgi We've got uh, I've got my digital clone out there working for me now. He might work for less, but from a scalability standpoint, who gives a shit? I would give a shit. Yeah, and here's why. Okay, because if you if Tom Hanks is one of my favorite actors, oh, yeah. I really enjoy Tom Hanks. He's, he's got a great repertoire and he's got a great range that he can do. But he's in a lot of movies. Yes, and you'd be hard pressed to say that there are not actors. That could have been just as good, if not better, than Tom Hanks in some of the movies that he's done. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, that scalability, let's assume for a moment we can take a Tom Hanks or a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt and we could use their likeness. I mean, look at how young Harrison Ford was in his last movie mm-hmm. with some of the multimodal digital impact that they were able to do with artificially intelligent agents. When you get that kind of scalability, do you then also decrease the range of creativity? If every movie that we produce only has three actors, are we really still a creative culture or are we just regurgitating more of the same? And that's one of the risks that I think the the Screen Actors Guild and after the scriptwriters, the actors are seeing is that as this expands, to your point, maybe they get paid less, but they could scale. So if you're doing 100 movies at a million dollars a piece, you don't have to do 10 movies at $10 million a piece, mm-hmm. right? You're still earning the same amount of money, but are you decreasing the creativity level of Hollywood in general? I think we absolutely open up the door to decreasing the creativity level. But it, it's not just there with, with the screen actors. It's across books, right? How many children's books are written by artificially intelligent agents, large language models? Yeah. How many fiction novels are going to be written? Are are we creating this world where the majority of what is output is only based on what we've done before? We really start to narrow that creativity bond. And that decreases our value in my mind as a human species of thinking outside the boundaries of what we already know to be true by pushing the limits of where we need to go. Well, the good news is, Tom, we could bring the dead back. So Elvis, John Wayne, and Janis Joplin <laughs> yes. can all start putting out new content uh, oh, any no. minute now. No, Back, back to the, the Screen Actors <laughs> no. Guild. And, and I think we focus a lot on the Tom Cruises and the, the big money stars. Oh, yeah. It's the little guys, to me, that are going to get squashed. Oh, the, yeah. the extras in the background. And the up-and-comers who aren't going to get that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Talk about your take on what happens to them. And I think if we if we take this full circle to employment, we know many of the recruiting activities can be monotonous and can be replaced. What happens to recruiting? What happens to HR tech that can maybe be replaced? Talk about the little guy and how it impacts ultimately our business. If we think about the little guy in the Screen Actors Guild, for example, Mm -hmm. you lose the next Tom Cruise. You lose the next Tom Hanks. You lose the next Julia Roberts or Dame Judi Dench. You lose those folks because exactly to your point, they never have an opportunity to grow because we're capitalizing on 
characters that are created by actors that we already know and are already trusted as money makers inside so, of the so, industry. So could I push back on that and say sure. TikTok and Reels will be where the next famous people come from. We don't need Hollywood to be that incubator because we have social media and TikTok. Isn't that where the next big stars come from? Those are different stars. Okay. If you think about what it takes to actually do a movie, and Tom Hanks actually has a really interesting short documentary about this, the level of effort that goes into an actual movie is absolutely ginormous. It's huge. The impact of putting together a 30-second TikTok is actually very small. The benefit of the TikTokers that have grown and have grown a huge base have done so because they've created a story arc for themselves. It hasn't been one particular video. It's been a series of videos, and they've captured the attention of folks that are there. Tom's personal opinion, I think that's different than a storytelling adventure, which is creating something out of nothing. Game of Thrones mm-hmm. on TikTok is a lot harder to create mm-hmm. than Game of Thrones in a production studio. It's, it's not impossible, but I think it's a lot harder to produce inside of there. And I think TikTok ties into, again, Tom's personal opinion, the more immediate gratification realm that people want, whether it's with, through doom scrolling or just scrolling through videos, you can move very, very quickly. It doesn't take a lot of attention to watch a 20-second TikTok video. And then you can get caught up in you know the links to those videos and the different marketing and advertising that can be done. But it's different than a, than a large content. Just like if you're going to try to write War and Peace with ChatGPT, uh-huh. it may not be as easy as you think. Yeah. That is a tome of a story. Or Hamlet. I could I could see I could see Broadway and actual in person uh, actors thriving in this environment. But anyway, I, I sidetracked Absolutely. you from recruitment and how this is going to impact you did. that. You did. So, so sorry, sorry. Go go on. As you get into the recruiting side of things, or even just. HR tech in general, Mm -hmm. you know, conversational AI is one of those things that started as sort of a, a, a small little idea a few years ago and conversational AI is everywhere now. And, and I think it's comical sometimes too. You look at the value of a company like paradox and the incredible work that they're doing inside of this market and try to say, Oh, well, I'm just going to create a paradox replacement with chat GPT. No, you're not. It's not going to happen. Right, because there, there's this concept of things like hallucinations and zero shots. Large language models. When you're thinking about it from a recruiting perspective, you've got to be really, really careful about these things like hallucinations. And I'll explain a little bit about what that is. It's basically a large language model that just makes stuff up or says stuff that's well, it's predicting, right? And prediction isn't isn't you know always true. Joel should know not that. always true and not always. DEI safe. Yeah. To use that kind of word. We have a lot of books that were written that are incredibly offensive, incredibly racist, that are part of the way these large language models are being built up. Mm -hmm. So if if we think we're just going to, you know, throw a quick large language model in and you're going to have a chatbot and that chatbot's going to be your new recruiter, Mm -hmm. you're opening yourself up to a lot, a lot of risk. There is so much work that needs to go into ensuring that candidate experience is the best possible experience because we may have had some layoffs. We may have some hiccups in the economy, but the reality is we still have a fairly low unemployment rate. 
We still have a highly competitive market for really, really good talent. And that candidate experience is not decreasing in importance over time. It's absolutely not decreasing. But what we can do is we can use these large language models and companies that are doing really, really good work with large language models to enhance that experience. It doesn't mean that we have to replace it. It means that we can enhance it. Now, when we think about humans versus automation, Mm -hmm. I would say when you think about high volume recruiting, great opportunity where you don't necessarily need a human to spend hours and hours and hours doing interviewing and doing, you know, background checks and doing uh, question and answer sessions. That's a great opportunity to apply something like conversational AI to some of that high throughput. But we also have to be careful too, because if you look at what happened with AWS a few years ago, when they tried to automate resume reviews, oh yeah, it didn't go exactly <laughs> how they planned. Uh, so no. we still need yes, it, yeah, car crash, train wreck, and a number of ways to look at it. So we've got to be very, very careful about how we apply some of these technologies to ensure that we're not introducing bias, that we're not introducing prejudices, that we're not introducing any of the, the, the pitfalls that you've got by letting tech just sort of run amok without any sort of constraints or measurements. Well, that being said, let me throw this out there because Paradox is, is one thing. I mean, they're, become, they, they're becoming a platform. I mean, e- even yes. like core, core platform. Yes. Then you've got a Textio, right? That to me mm-hmm. today seems more like a feature than a platform, especially when you've got these large language models that are out there. Now, they do have domain-specific data in power, no question. But if you have other organizations that are out there that might be behind Textio right now, and Textio is a very expensive product, $42.5 million in, in funding, that might do some of it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, how quick could an organization catch up to a Textio, um, which is not really platform specific? It just seems more futuristic. It depends on what you're trying to do with the technology. Uh-huh. And, and I say that very specifically because you can slap anything together very quickly today mm-hmm. with a large language model. It, it really doesn't take a lot of effort. What takes effort is the psychological side of how you're interacting with candidates, for example, just having technology slapped with a nice little web UI interface and you've got some JavaScript and you pop up this little chatbot, it's very easy to get back to the days 10 years ago where people hated working with those chatbots. Like <laughs> lots of major companies were out there. It's like, how can I help you today? Oh, well, I've got a question about my bill. Oh, you've got a question about Bill. Bill can be at your house in three hours. It's like, no, that's not what I said. There's a all. link to search results about Bill questions. <laughs> about, Bill. <laughs> about Bill questions, exactly. And as we think about this, the, the aspect of how you're interfacing with folks becomes so important now and becomes the differentiator. So as I think about how quickly could someone create something like this, it really is about how good are you going to leverage the technology from a psychological perspective that enhances the candidate experience? Because it'll be very, very quick to lose the candidate experience with a really bad product, but it's really, really easy to create a very bad product today in this particular context when you're trying to interact live with humans. It's not going to take much to build a bad product. Keeping it in Hollywood a little bit, uh, Sarah Silverman, one of my favorite uh, comedians, is is in a lawsuit right now 
for AI using her image, I guess, her 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 content. This is obviously going to play on it. It reminds me a little oh, bit yeah. about the early days of YouTube where people would just put everything on that was trademarked and copyrighted yep. and there was tons of lawsuits and that that all got settled. Does this go a similar route or do you see the, the lawsuits and how this plays out differently than maybe YouTube did? I see this plays out a little differently than YouTube because there is some specificity about what Sarah is suing for. It's suing for where she believes information that was copyright protected was being used in the large language models. And that's an important differentiation, I think, from from just using things that are publicly available. You know, when, when you think about like YouTube, what's copyrighted, a politician's speech, if you're recording a politician speaking in a public forum, they can't copyright that because you you as part of how you can operate in a free society is you can post something that you videoed that was in the public domain. Sarah's arguing that you use things that are not in the public domain, that I sell books, I sell tickets to my comedy show. Those are a trade between a customer and a provider. You've paid me to get a value for something. So Sarah's argument is you've used things that are not free to build your large language model that you are now making money from. So that I think is there's a little bit of a nuanced difference between how YouTube kind of grew. But I would tie it into more with what happened with music 20 years ago, with all the peer-to-peer music sharing, Napster, for example. That That was a great example of using copyrighted material to forward the use in a way that it was never intended. And there's a reason today why Apple Music is doing as well as they do, because they sell for a very modest cost access to this huge world of information. Mm -hmm. But the music producers still get a benefit, a financial benefit from that. In Sarah's case, she's arguing, I'm getting no financial benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's not just Sarah Silverman. There are communities of artists, for example, that are suing some of the the image generative AI tools that are producing likenesses. Mm -hmm. So you can argue folks like Monet, it's now in the public domain. So, hey, take my picture on vacation in Faro, Portugal, and make it look like a Monet painting. Yeah. But for artists that are alive today who own the copyright, own the property of their artwork, that artwork that's available on a website that's being scraped and used to then create a likeness of that art is a different type of challenge that's going to be seen in the courts. If if one group of people is going to make more money than anybody else in the world of generative AI, mm-hmm. it's going to be the lawyers. Oh, God, yeah. So uh, Ron DeSantis used a Trump AI uh, voice, right? So it wasn't Trump, but it was his AI kind of like modulated voice, let's say, his, his voice clone in a commercial, right? It's pretty much against Trump at this point. Now, usually they would use voice actors that sound like the the, the politician. It, at this point, we're saying, well, I, I, we generally would use voice actors. That's okay. So why can't we use AI? When are we going to draw a line in the sand on this? Or, or, or can we just because of past precedent? My personal belief is we're not going to be able to draw a line. Because to draw the line, you need legislation. You need a law to cross that line to have impact. And the challenge that we have today 
is the understanding for the general public of large language models mm-hmm. is sparse. They know what large language models are. They can use them. They can employ them. But the ins and outs of the technical aspect of what it does is a fairly complex set of equations and technologies. And it, being at Google, I don't even understand a lot of the ways that this works. You know, the, the folks that are working on this are absolutely brilliant visionaries. Yeah. The, the challenge next is how do we get this into a legislative form that could be enforced so that people could cross that line? We, we as a society in general across the world know that this is a concern, but what's the right reaction to this? The EU is taking a certain approach to this. The U.S. is taking another approach to this. Some other countries are taking no approach to this at all and mm-hmm. just allowing it to happen. And part of it, too, is thinking about how do we control the information that exists in our countries? And I'll give you a, a quick example of this. In the United States, we have rules to protect the privacy of our citizens. We have rules to protect copyright. We have rules to protect data. So building these large language models, even though it seems like it's an infinite amount of information, it actually is a small corpus of data relative to all the potential data that exists. Other countries don't have these limitations. So if you look at how China operates they don't necessarily have the same privacy protections on their citizens as we do. They don't have the same privacy protections on data as we do. Oh, no. So their ability to train a large language model actually has quite a large corpus of data that extends beyond what we have right. to be able to move this forward. So we're in, we're in a world where, let's say, for example, we put legislation in place and there is a line that's crossed that said you cannot use an artificially intelligent agent to mimic the voice of a sitting or a former president saying words that they've never said with the intent to deceive or to misinform. Right. That, that's a that's a pretty strong statement. Right. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying that Ron DeSantis did this, but that's kind of where the legislation would look to go. How do you protect the American people from misinformation or disinformation that can be easily generated by an artificially intelligent agent? But who's to say that we couldn't build that same type of thing in another country that doesn't have the same protections and use to it, citizens? Yes. And then use it. And then also from our standpoint, use it against other countries. And then obviously they could use it against us because we have our own rules. It doesn't mean Correct. that they're going to abide by our rules, a.k.a. Cambridge Correct. Analytica and Facebook. That escalated quickly. And drawing this back to Joel's question earlier about should we sleep well at night or not? The misinformation, disinformation side of things mm-hmm. is probably a much bigger threat than any sort of kinetic activity because we've already seen how powerful misinformation and disinformation can be oh, yes. on the global stage. Yes. All right, Tom, I- I'm going to end on this. It's a simpler question, but no less important. Okay. How do these companies <laughs> monetize? How does ChatGPT make money? How does Google Bard, which is in a really tight situation because they already have a, a printing press for money, how do they monetize these businesses? If you look at the way that ChatGPT has monetized, they've basically said, we have a free version, the freemium model, that then ties you into wanting more that gets you into a paid model. And, I, and I, last I checked, I think ChatGPT is $20 for the premium model that gets you access to version four. 
people who are doing this professionally, if you think about going back to writers, going back to recruiters doing job ads, going back to folks that are writing policy documents for the government, Mm -hmm. the ability to have a tool that helps you over time is a way to monetize this going forward. The the ability to to jump into ChatGPT, say, write me an abstract for a conference that I want to talk to that highlights these three points for this particular audience saves me a ton of time. That's worth 20 bucks a month for me, as an example for something like Mm -hmm. with ChatGPT. On on the commercial side for businesses, there's there's a whole new side of things that Google is working on called enterprise search, which helps use large language models find your data much, much more easily. There's a whole enterprise world that we are just now starting to tap that gives you that ability to look more deeply into your information that you've already got. And we'll use the government as an example. Imagine a tool that moves from Boolean search into something that's truly a generative search that looks through every page of the US code, which is massive. You're getting to a world where you don't necessarily need a law degree to be able to start understanding a little bit more about the law. And you're opening up people's minds and people's abilities. And then think about it from the policy perspective for the government. If the government can use this type of technology and the, the ways that you know Google is thinking about this long term with accessing the world's information in new and ingenious ways, Now, with like tax codes, where you have multiple, multiple replicative and duplicative parts of the tax code, just because the tax code is so big, policymakers can make things more simple for the average American every day. And that opens up opportunities for monetization as well. All we need is a chip in our head at this point, because we are in the matrix. I can learn how to fly a fucking helicopter. I mean, this shit happens overnight. We're in a world where I need a a nonstop dose of Tylenol, Tom. (laughs) Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Tom, for anyone out there that wants to connect with you or learn more about what you do, where would you send them? I would send them either to LinkedIn, Tom Kenny, or you can check me out on Twitter at TCLMC5. Chad, that is another one in the can. I learned a new word, Zetabytes. 60% of the time, (laughs) it works every time. And with that... We out. We out. Wow. Look at you. You made it through an entire episode of the Chat and Chase podcast. Or maybe you cheated and fast-forwarded to the end. Either way, there's no doubt you wish you had that time back. Valuable time you could have used to buy a nutritious meal at Taco Bell, enjoy a pour of your favorite whiskey, or just watch big booty Latinas and bug fights on TikTok. No, you hung out with these two chuckleheads instead. Now go take a shower and wash off all the guilt. But save some soap, because you'll be back. Like an awful train wreck, you can't look away. And like Chad's favorite western, you can't quit them either. We out. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. 
redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.